Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're reading through the Stephen Matron and Jack Aubrey novels of Patrick O'Brien. This is our celebratory 100th episode, and we're delighted to have you with us. Welcome aboard. Looking forward to this 100th episode with your questions and our attempted answers here. You know, we've really enjoyed the incredible diversity, the humor, and the insight of all the questions here. We're going to try to answer as many as we can, and we don't have time to name every questioner. Uh, we figure if we do that, we're not going to get as many in. Uh, all of you who talk to us via Twitter and Facebook. We can see your names out there, but we realize that our Patreon supporters, you don't get to see those. So, so we'll definitely name them. Um, where there are questions that were similar, we tried to roll them up. So you might find your question embedded in an answer to another one here. All right. That's right. And as a little special extra feature, we had an early dialogue about some of these questions with our Patreon supporters, folks who've joined us and supported the show over at patreon.com forward slash lovers whole. Uh, and a few of those folks were kind enough to record a video clip of the question. So we've got a little bit of extra video treat for you from our Patreon fans uh, to help relieve you from the from the burden of having to look at my face and Mike's for the whole period of the show here. Anyway, we hope that you're enjoying the experience. I should also say, by the way, hello to all our YouTube viewers. You guys are getting the full multimedia experience this week, not just a screen grab. Um, hello to you. Thank you for your support. Welcome aboard. So we're going to start out with a video question from our friend over on Patreon, Ken Douglas. Here's Ken's question. Hi, Ian and Mike. First of all, congratulations on reaching this fantastic milestone. You guys have you've done a great job and you've created something special which I and so many others look forward to keenly each and every week. In fact, it's hard to imagine a time when there wasn't a lover's hole. So I'm interested to know, how did the idea of creating your own podcast actually start? What was its, its moment of conception, so to speak. Mike, Ian, I've got one more question, but first of all, a glass of wine with you. I love that expression. And it also got me thinking, if you were to have the opportunity to have a glass of wine with Patrick O'Brien himself, bearing in mind his famous sensitivity to personal questions, what would you hope to talk about? Ken, a, a glass of wine with you. Um, obviously, looks like coffee, doesn't it? But the, the spirit is there from both of us. Ian's got his lover's whole mug even uh, front and center here. Great questions. Love your accent. <laughs> so they need you to do some voiceovers for us here. Um, so how did the idea come up? It, this was born of the pandemic, I think, like so many things. Ian and I were talking realized we had both started a circumnavigation as part of the very early pandemic. And Ian mentioned that he'd love to, to listen to a podcast to kind of go along with the reading, but said there wasn't one. I really didn't know much about that, but I love Googling and searching. So I thought, you know, let me see if I can't find something. And sure enough, there is a podcast, but it's in Portuguese, which wasn't going to work <laughs> for us, you know, obrigado, but that's about it for me. Um, so, 
um, you know, I said, Ian, let's, you know, let's do this. Let's do a podcast, except you need to help me because I've never actually listened to a podcast and I'm not sure what they are. And I'd have no idea how to make one. So Ian, God bless him, can do all of that. And uh, and we took it for there. So I, I think that, you know, the moment of conception, and Patrick O'Brien would love that phrase, is tucked somewhere in there. Now, Speaking of Patrick O'Brien and having a glass of wine, as you said, you know, regardless of what I wanted to talk about, um, I suspect that O'Brien would talk about whatever he was going to talk about. And, and yeah, if I was true. right, <laughs> you know, what one of our listeners told us that they had gone to one of these gala nights with O'Brien and he announced to the crowd, you know, I'm going to take your questions as promised, but they have to be limited to Jane Austen. So I suspect that maybe we'd end up talking about Jane Austen. But, you know, what I'd really love to hear, I'd love to hear him. And I'd really, really love to hear, hear him and Mary talk about them working together in writing these books. I would love that. And, and you know, I would, I would make sure the bottle never stood by me the entire time. That Thanks, would be fascinating. <laughs> yeah, great question. And Mike, following along from that, we've had some folks asking us as well um, how we met each other, what what we've done for for our careers, and how that's kind of brought us to this point. Do, how would you describe the, the the first encounters between Ian Bradley and Mike Shank? Oh, yeah, Ian's, Ian's getting me here because this is very embarrassing. <laughs> many, many, many years ago. Um, I was doing consulting work and training for a client who was going into consulting and services. I had done this for IBM earlier, and they acquired a very top-notch consultancy in England, in Cambridge, and I was going to do a project with them, and I had to submit my expenses, but I was flat out, and so I asked a colleague of mine to do that on my behalf. Much to my chagrin, he just submitted my entire credit card for the month. And the guy who caught it and really dinged me good was a gentleman named Ian Bradley. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we got to meet under these uh, most inauspicious circumstances. But, you know, as, as time progressed, uh, we ended up working together, traveling the world together, training together, even going out on my first sailing expedition yeah. together. Ian, Ian, any, anything you would add there? It, it, it's, it's really nice to look back on the story. It was a heck of a long time ago. Uh, we're both at least as old as we look. I want to say that I remember the first time I saw you giving a presentation, giving a, a, a training workshop, and I thought this guy is a really, really good storyteller. I thought this guy's a very good talker for a living. I really like, I like listening. And I guess that's one of the reasons why we ended up doing the podcast. Like, now, mm. although we're both fans of the books and I'd enjoy talking about the books, neither of us is ultimately any kind of a scholar or a critic. We're just two guys who love the books and wanted to keep our friendship kind of ticking over through pandemic and we both talk for a living right we both talk for a living and right. i guess that's right one one way that we got to this point well and, and i would add that i would never know about the canon's existence had ian not introduced me to it probably also wouldn't know about the west wing which is a real commentary on my on my life yeah. had ian not introduced me to it <laughs> 
Well, we might come back to that connection again today. Let's see how the questioning goes. So there's a little bit about the story of how we got to this point. And uh, uh, thank you for the question. We really enjoy talking about that. Um, We have a few rapid fire questions to take care of now. Let me see. Uh, First one here. um, Just exactly how much coffee and cheese do Jack and Stephen consume on Voyagers? And in Blue at the Mizzen, how the heck did they find the cheese after Cape Horn? Um, How much coffee and cheese? Exactly the right amount. That's how much. Um, Where did they find the cheese? I think you're teasing O'Brien there a little bit about the uh, fanciful um, supply situation here. Well, I think that they found the cheese in the Orlop under a bear costume, guarded by a gin, and also with a duckbill platypus uh, in attendance. So, (laughs) over to you. I love it. It it kind of keeping with that kind of question, which we love. How much alcohol does it take to debauch a sloth? And and you know, I just want to make a little public service announcement here. You have to be very careful with sloths. They pace themselves, right? So it's easy to be drunk under the table by a sloth with a hollow leg. But if yeah. you're really, really intent on debauching one and minimizing the alcohol that you have to you know, spend for, then, you know, we recommend like our hero that you serve it to him in a bowl with cake. And that really cuts down the amount wise words the things that we've learned from reading o'brien might get a mess. <laughs> that's right very good that's great um a, a question here from listener says uh, what's your favorite insult um ken says i'm particularly keen on the most unromantic beast that ever urged its squat thick bulk across the face of the protesting earth which i'm pretty sure was a line aimed at mother williams ken i like that one um I'm also quite partial to Stephen's really, really frustrated outburst about uh, about the two young women who came and ate a dinner aboard ship. I think it was in HMS Surprise. Um, the sandy-haired, coarse-featured, pimply, short-necked, thick-fingered, vulgar-minded, lubricious blockheads. That's wow. that's a mic drop insult for me. <laughs> you know, Ava Sanders always talked about those stacks of adjectives. We we yeah, love those. So we've got some more rapid fire, and and I can't believe I pulled this one. Sophie or Diana? My gosh, don't make me choose. But the universe and its infinite wisdom allowed me to marry Annie, who is both Sophie and Diana. So I don't have to choose, thank goodness. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Rapid fire for me, boiled baby or spotted dick? Well, you know, I, I'm a big fan of suet puddings of all kinds. Um, however, I'm a sucker for dried fruit, especially combined with suet and nutmeg. So for me, Mike, spot a dick every time. Nice. Nice. You know, what a choice, spotted dick or boiled baby, you know, and, yeah. and you can, you know, you can see O'Brien, that <laughs> the lover of that double entendre and, and, and words there. So there's a, there's a double entendre. I, I, I never knew. I never knew. No, I'm yeah, no, right, right, right. We'll get back to Wallace later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Mahan or Malta? Well, mm-hmm. pre-canon, it would have been Malta all the way. I mean, I love the knights. I love some of the history there. I love some other series, you know, that have featured heavily in Malta. But you know, with the series and the octagonal room, it's got to be Mahan, right? And and one day I hope to be sailing with my particular friend Ian Bradley and his bride Joy around that beautiful harbor and around that island. Yeah, and uh, picking up a bottle or two of Mahan gin along the way. I think that completes the package there really nicely. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Great question. 
So um, next one that I have here. Are there any parts of the canon that you think are just a bit too far-fetched? The listener says, hint, I have a problem with the bear costume. Yeah, you and about half the internet. Um, <laughs> even though it turns out to have been based on a factual story, one or two other moments stretch the bounds of credibility. Um, I, I don't know if this is controversial, but I'm, I'm fine. Uh, I, I'm fine with the far-fetched pieces. Uh, even the bear episode, also Stephen the Phoenix, right, when he got kind of roasted in the sun and then miraculously recovered. The encounter with the almost human ape in the temple in 13 Gun Salute. There's a bit of magical realism about lots of O'Brien's writing. And if we're going to insist that everything is perfect and authentic and wrapped up in a bow, like from a naval dispatch, great as that all is, I think if we insist on everything being like that, then we're missing out on lots of the the poetry, the, the real literary creativity that's in the writing. And besides, I don't think O'Brien's really writing about ships or warfare or bears or apes. I think he's writing, Mike, as you, as you and I've said, he's writing about um, friendship and loyalty and honor and self-knowledge and you know, human experience. And if he stretches the bounds of reality to get us there, then I think I'm, I'm fine with that. Here, here. Here, here. <sighs> Good. That's a great question. Thank you for the question. Uh, now let's go back to video land. We have a video question here from one of our Patreon friends. This time it's Andy Brandle known in some parts of the internet as Lance Criminal Galen. Over to you, Andy. Hi, Mike and Ian. Thanks for having me on. Congratulations on reaching 100 shows. Uh, for those of you out there who don't know me, my name's Andy. Um, Mike and Ian may be more familiar with my Patreon handle, which is Lance Criminal Galen. It's kind of a, kind of a dumb joke. Uh, Lance Criminal is, you know, kind of a... Kind of a way to say Lance Corporal from, from the Marines, uh, because I served in the Marine Corps and then Galen, because, uh, one of my, one of my heroes from history is, is Galen, who kind of, uh, is one of the founders of the Humeric theory of medicine, which is also what, what seems to be the, uh, the foundation of what Stephen bases his practices on. A and, um, so, Thanks for having me on. And, and, you know, I got a question for you guys regarding the practice, the medical practice of Dr. Matron. In your opinion, has Dr. Stephen Matron ever committed uh, any kind of medical malpractice? And if he did, what would be the evidence for this? Thanks, guys. I'm looking forward to hearing your answer. Bye. Ah, very good. So, you know, any, I, I think... And, and I didn't go back to look this one up, but I believe somewhere in the canon, he contemplated it very clearly, uh, yeah. thinking about doing somebody in with poison, you know, uh, in, in the pursuit of an intelligence matter. But I believe he did not do that. Now, I, I know that in self-defense, he is not shy about, you know, winging somebody with a paperweight or, or shooting the back. But Ian reminded me of one that we might, uh, you know, if, if we're going strictly by the Hippocratic Oath, say maybe this one was a little questionable. Um, I'm referring, of course, to, you know, Matron saying, Wallace, I'm happy to find you here. How is your penis? So everybody, we're coming up to the 13-gun salute here. We'll be diving into this here. But here is a non-medical circumcision to allow a member of the intelligence network to kind of pass in a Turkish bath. So not, not quite sure if that's medical malpractice. Certainly, you know, all the plastic surgeons who are listening, I didn't even bring this up. <laughs> 
Excellent. Oh, God bless Wallace. Uh, next question here. It's, a, it's another interesting one. Um, tough, though. Um, best battle in the series. Best naval battle in the series. And, and Mike, this is tricky. I've got to say this is tricky. It For any of us, it's actually quite hard to keep an inventory of all the battles because some of them are so great and he works so hard to make them all different from each other. We are, of course, just at the end of our second reread of Master and Commander. And there's fabulous action, especially aboard the Sophie and, uh, and the Cacafuego. Uh, I quite n- liked as well nerding out over the action um, against Linwa's squadron in the Indian Ocean in HMS Surprise. That was a really interesting squadron action. Again, really authentic. But my particular favourite for the urgency of the naval action, for the first-person perspective, and for all that it meant for the characters involved was in Post Captain, the, the cutting-out expedition in Shulia right at the end of Post Captain. Um, Polycrest going aground, Jack cutting out the Fanchula, and then the big reconciliation between Stephen and Jack. Big, but told in very, very brief words. You remember the line, here is too much blood altogether. It's a really great great moment. That That is a fabulous, fabulous moment. Oh, so true. Well, Anthony, you've asked if we've ever read the Naval Chronicle. And embarrassingly, I have to say, that I hadn't until I read your question. So I, of course, immediately had to go out and read the Naval Chronicle. And and I'm so glad I did. So I I started with kind of the first one in 1801, since we were in the midst of Master and Commander wrapping up. And, you know, what I found was that it reads a lot like O'Brien, at least in the preface. So, you know, for any of you who have not, you don't actually have to go, you know, go sit down and go to the stacks. You can find them online, pictures of the actual books page by page. So well done, Anthony. Thanks so much for that. Fantastic. Fantastic. Maybe one day, Mike, we'll manage to get ourselves to the point where we have a whole episode where we go to one of the archives somewhere, maybe the Cared Archive at Greenwich. Nice. Ah, It's great that we can see them online. We have such an easier life than than researchers like O'Brien ever did. Right. Too true. Ah, We've got another in-depth a uh, really tough scholarly question here. Um, sloth or potto? Sloth or potto? Mike, I'm, I'm going to expose myself to a risk here. I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I think I might get some hate online for this. But let me just try and, let me try and lay out my position here. On the one hand, I dearly love a sloth. Love all the sloth humor. Love the debauchery. Love the rum. But I've got to say, I'm about done with internet sloth memography everywhere you look all of the discussion board all of twitter all of reddit most of the gun room that i i'm my sloth runneth over so i'm going to start a new trend i i think we can make a new meme trend let's make it all about the potto i i can see some hashtags hashtag all about the potto hashtag potto memes remember folks remember where you heard this first let's get it trending it's all about the potto this week all about the potto. Oh my gosh. All right. Another rapid fire. 32 pound carronade or eight pound long brass chaser. Obviously, both of these things uh, have very you know important uses here, but but I've got to tell you, my personal favorite, because it was Jack's personal, has got to be the eight pound long brass cannon. And and you know, it polishes up so nicely. Killick would appreciate that. Um and as long as you take Tom Pullings with you when you're buying the surprise, you don't have to choose. You get both. 
Plus, 32 pound of carnage, they're ballast after all. So, right. that says it. that's right. <laughs> well put. Oh, okay. Another tough one here, Mike. Even tougher than Sloth versus, Sloth versus Potto. Um, what's your favorite book in the canon, or is that too hard to call? Mike, Whoa. we've both said this is way too hard to call. Uh, I'm going to fall back on our traditional favorite, which is do you know what? It's whichever one I'm reading even if it's the Mauritius Command. Partly because they're all great. And to be honest, if you're paying attention and you slow down a little and you dig behind their references and the illusions like we've been trying to do, they all have so much. And they all are bringing you right into the moment with the characters and the action. It's 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 really, really tough. So I'm sorry, but the answer is whichever one I'm reading this week. I absolutely agree, and Absolutely <sighs> agree. Well put. Well put. And there's more really, really great questions coming here from our listeners. We have got a really nice one here coming on video from our Patreon supporter, Chris McDermott. Over to you, Chris. Hi. This is Chris coming to you from a town in the United States called Situate, Massachusetts. Not, as Bondin would say, Sodom, Massachusetts. Congratulations to Mike and Ian on 100 episodes. You are truly indefatigable, and what a surprise it is for you to ask me to be on your show. Do you smoke it? Anyway, here's my question. On January 6th, 1991, Richard Snow of the New York Times famously wrote of the Aubrey Maturin novels, best historical novels ever written. On every page, O'Brien reminds us with subtle artistry of the most important of all historical lessons, that times change, but people don't. That the griefs and follies and victories of the men and women who are here before us are in fact the maps of our own lives. End quote. If Snow is correct and Times change, but people don't. I take that to mean the same archetypes of people reemerge across generations. For example, we all probably know wistful dreamers like Don Quixote, or loyal to the end friends like Sancho Panza. If Snow is correct, who from literature or history? do you think Jack resembles or Stephen or metaphysically O'Brien himself or meta metaphysically yourselves? I thank you for your time and oh yes, Mr. Mowat, pizza quarters. Good. Chris, always glad to hear from Massachusetts, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking Fortune of War. I did smoke the Hornblower and the Desolation Island references in the question. Nicely done <laughs> as well. Now, I I love Richard Snow's uh, uh, famous review. Uh, I love as well, uh, is this the best writer you've never heard of? Patrick O'Brien, kind of almost, you know, just right after, I think that one, you know, Ken Ringle in the Washington Post. But 
you know, to get to the meat of your question here, you know, this idea about, you know, whether people change or not here, um, you know, I have to think back as an individual, if you ask me at different times of my life, whether people are basically good or basically evil or somewhere in between, you know, I think I would have defended almost to the last breath very different positions along those. And I suspect so that, you know, yeah, people individually change. But more to your point here, you know, um, about people over time. And, and I think that's absolutely right, that the times change, but people don't. And by that, I think you're really getting at, and, and, I, and I think that Snow is getting at, one of the things that I love most about the canon, that, um, you know, we can see ourselves, even though we've got, you know, O'Brien has built this incredible world back here in the early 1800s. We see ourselves in this time, in those moments as well. So I can't tell you how many times I'm listening to Patrick Tall or I'm reading through and I just stop for a minute to reflect on that. So, um, you know, I love that. Now, archetypes, I'm, I'm going to have to hand over to my particular friend, Ian Bradley, on <laughs> archetypes generally here. Right. Thank you. It's a really fascinating question. Who from real world history or from our from our own knowledge most resembles Jack and Stephen? The the Jack one it is interesting, but I really don't feel qualified. I don't think I've got deep knowledge of all of the archetypes of great great leaders, not even necessarily great admirals, but great captains and great great leaders in other organizations as well. I have a feeling that Jack Aubrey is the platonic ideal in Patrick O'Brien's mind of a skillful, charismatic, empathetic, f- you know, flawed but brave and good leader. And I think there have been plenty of those. I-, I don't have a single one standing out in my head. I think if I chose one, somebody else would be able to top it. My, my thinking goes in a bit of a di- different direction when I'm thinking about Stephen, maybe because I feel a bit more kind of close kin to Stephen, maybe because I think Stephen is in the novels basically to be the avatar for Patrick O'Brien himself. And I think who who has got this characteristic of being um, a bit introverted, a bit thoughtful, a bit iconoclastic, sometimes a little bit edgy and spiteful, very dry with the wit. And I think about someone like Christopher Hitchens. And again, I, I bet listeners might be able to find a better real world analog to Stephen Maturin. But I think the late, fascinating, erudite, very, very smart Christopher Hitchens, there are talks and... Uh, and lectures of his on YouTube as well, is probably the closest that I've got in my mind right now to a real-world Stephen Maturin. Nice. nice. So thank you. Like you say, Mike, really, really great question. Um, let's get into the, uh, the rapid fire again. I have another great one here. Um, I'm, I'm being led a little bit, I sense, here by this particular listener. What's your favorite naval jargon, and why is it cross-cut harpings? Well, you're kind of inviting me to push back on that one. I'm going to reject the premise right there. First of all, cross-cut harpings. I I think the lubber's hole is pretty hot property when it comes to naval jargon. So we'll just kind of, we'll we'll take that for a second. Um, Besides, I mean, so much of it is is great and has this really fantastic, colourful quality, you know, futtock shrouds. Um, I'm going to go subversive on this one. I'm going to go for Irish penance because... Irish pennants are these kind of loose, wispy pieces of untidy-looking rigging that kind of float in the breeze. 
And I like the Irish penance, not for what they are, but for the rejoinder that we get from Stephen when he says, well, I served with some Irish sailors and the same thing in the Irish Navy are called Saxon standards. So there you go. Irish penance for the banter. Nicely done. Nicely done. Well, another rapid fire here. You know, who would you rather have a, a beer or a glass of wine with? Matron or Aubrey? Awkward Davis or Preserve Killick? Well, gosh, you know, the first one. Oh, you know, don't make me choose between Jack and Stephen here. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very much a team Stephen, although I love them both and I love them both together. But I would probably prefer a drink with Jack. I, you know, just, you just don't know what kind of mood Stephen's going to be in. And it, oh, we're going for a drink. Yeah. I'd love to engage Stephen on all kinds of topics. Uh, very much so. Uh, but, but just going out for a drink, probably Jack. Now, in terms of the second pairing, you know, Awkward Davis makes me very nervous. You know, yeah, that, that isn't to say that I wouldn't dive in to save him, but I would try to convince him that it was Jack, not me. Uh, Awkward Davis on alcohol makes me even more nervous. So I, I think I'm going to go for Killick here, besides which, you know, I just get to hear all those phrases again, and I love that. Oh, yes. Killick's our friend. Besides, my, imagine walking into a bar and there's Awkward Davis and Alfred King going, come over here, chum, let's pull up a stool. I, uh, oh. I, I might say, uh, it's a school night. Right. <laughs> but, uh, Great stuff. Here's another one. Um, how do you think the 21st book would have played out? And where would you have liked to have seen the canon go after the 20th novel? Uh, and Mike, this is another moment of vulnerability for me. I'm going to confess. I'm going to confess here and now to all of the Lubbers Hole listeners, I have not yet read the unfinished 21st novel. I have a copy. It's on my bookshelf. Admittedly, not the bookshelf behind there, a bookshelf in the other part of the house. But I haven't read 21 for, for a number of reasons. And the answer is, I'm going to read 21 when the Lubbers Hole gets there, and I'll appreciate it for what it is at that point. So I haven't got a strong opinion about how it would have played out, and I don't want to kind of condition my brain. So I'm going to just politely take the, take the fifth on that part of the question. And where would you have liked to have seen the canon go after the 20th novel? Well, I'm going to say nowhere. I, I think the canon's great. O'Brien started it where he started it. He completed it where he completed it. When it's done, it's done. And I, I can't really bring myself to enjoy imagining what might have happened next, except as a kind of very, uh, very kind of indirect thinking process. Besides, uh, no one, I think, really wants to imagine Jack Aubrey getting old and impotent, chewing out junior commanders and pretending not to care about prize money. I, I don't think anybody wants to see that. Or, or do we? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe time for some more rapid fire, Mike. Right, right. Boarding axe or cutlass? Well, for, for me, it's got to be cutlass. I, I did spend a short time fencing early, early, early on, and and I'm not strong enough at this point to handle a boarding axe. I would be like Stephen. The boarding axe would go over. I would go with it and be in between <laughs> boats. That would be no good. Oh, oh, excellent. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we know all about that now. It's a it's an upper body game. It's an upper body yes. sport, right? Yeah, absolutely. We have another video Patreon question, this time from our friend Phil over at the Folkcast podcast. Ahoy, Mike. Ahoy, Ian. And ahoy to all my fellow lovers. It's Phil Widows here, otherwise known as um, Folkcast. And uh, I've been asked to supply a question 
for the 100th episode of that most splendid podcast, A Lumber's Hole. So, okay, for my question, I'd like to indulge in a bit of fantasy fandom. And uh, the fantasy starts like this. You're washed up on that uh, well-known desert island. And on the beach there, you don't find eight records and a couple of old books. You find a brass lamp. And you give that brass lump, lump a bit of a rub, and out pops a genie, and he gives you just one wish. Yeah, a little bit stingy, but that, that shrinkflation for you. And um, you have to choose from these three choices. You can have one of the following. Will it be A, a major, big-budget TV show, retelling the story of uh, Aubrey, Maturin, all our heroes, right from the beginning, right from Master and Commander, all the way through. You know, the kind of thing that Amazon and Netflix do you know, with Game of Thrones and that new Lord of the Rings series that's coming up. Mm, really tasty. Or perhaps you prefer to see a secret movie. Yeah, they actually made a direct sequel to Master and Commander Far Side of the World. Yeah, they really did. They made it when they were making the first film. So it's the same characters, the same actors, same cast, same crew. And, um, well, when they presented that movie to the studio, the studio, for some reason, some bizarre Hollywood reason, decided not to release it. But now it's been rolled out of the vaults and you can see it. Just you, just you, nobody else. Or perhaps you prefer your geekdom in a more traditional form, um, in the form of novels, new novels, based on the writings of Patrick O'Brien by a new author, carrying on from the point where Patrick reached in his 21st final novel, The Unfinished Final Unfinished Voyage of Jack Aubrey. And it'll carry our heroes across a paperback ocean for a series of new literary adventures. So consider carefully the merits and pitfalls of each option, gentlemen, and talk to the genie nicely. Congratulations on crossing the centenary line. Um, hats off to you. Long live the lubber's hole, and if you can keep sailing a smooth course for another 100 episodes at least, why, well, I should like that, of all things. Oh, thank you. Great question. Thank you very much for the video message, Phil. Great to have you with us. Um, a couple of other people um, have asked about this as well in the other questions that we've had on Facebook and Twitter. Um, let's take your question in reverse order. Would I like to see novels by a new author continuing the canon? I, I think for the reasons that I gave a couple of answers ago, no thanks. I mean, I appreciate the efforts. It's sometimes entertaining to read fan fiction, which often heads us in that direction. But like, I, th I think the canon is is intact and it's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm not keen to see, you know, uh, a, a rewriting or an extending of the story. Movies and TV shows, different story. Um, a movie sequel. Wouldn't say no. If it had Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany in it, also wouldn't say no. If it had the HMS Rose model in it, absolutely wouldn't say no. Not sure I can say the same about all the cast, but if I can extend that experience that I loved of watching that movie, like I said, I'd pay good money to, to go see that. I'm even more fascinated, though, by what's currently allegedly in the offing, which is a prequel. So we've heard that uh, Patrick Ness is writing a screenplay for a prequel of a movie great i'm in but then also mike we've talked about this you know uh 
all of the the budgets and the special effects and the appetite for long form stories these days seems to be on cable TV and on streaming platforms. And if they can make Game of Thrones, you know, surely they can make um, the the Patrick O'Brien canon. Who, who wouldn't want to see that? So I, I I really hope I really hope that we might go there. Now, yeah. follow on question. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Go on. <laughs> no, no, no. I I absolutely agree. Good. <laughs> follow on question. Um, could you perhaps draft a cast for a streaming series of the books? Since we've already said in public that we'd really like someone to make them. So, Mike, I'm going to go to one of our earlier touch points, which was the the West Wing. I'm going to indulge myself in the fantasy that TV has never been any better than the peak of Aaron Sorkin's series, The West Wing. So here's my West Wing cast recast for a TV box set of the Aubrey Maturin series. I'm going to cast Bradley Whitford as Jack Aubrey. He's going to have to look a lot younger than he does now, but I'm thinking of Brad Whitford circa 1998. Um a younger Richard Schiff as Stephen Maturin for that introverted kind of grouchy power there. Martin Sheen as Sir Joseph Blaine. Yes. Janelle Maloney as Sophie. Oh, the fair hair, the sweet nature. Um, young Stocker Channing, spiky, dark-haired, witty, sharp-tongued Stocker Channing, a great Diana. Rob Lowe as charming, buffoonish, but ridiculously good-looking Jagiello. Dule Hill as either Pullings or Mowat. Um, a reincarnated John Spencer as the wartime conciliary of Barrett Bonden, and Josh Molina. Josh Molina, a fellow podcast host, as uh, as Babington. There you go. That's that's my casting. Um, back, perhaps, Mike, to some more quick fire questions here. Well, here's one supposedly quick fire: laudanum or cocoa leaf. Well, well, wait a minute. That's not a quick fire question. I'm going to have to have some context. What time of day is it? What are, what am I trying to do or get done? You know, <laughs> you, know look, you can't ask a child of the 60s and the 80s to choose between these two, right? Now, totally unfair. All right. I, honest answer. Honest answer would be laudanum. Mm, no, that, that concerns me. I, I'm, I'm not going to go there. Cocoa leaf, I've got ADHD out the wazoo. So my brain does not respond. You just get a lot of white powder on your nose. So, you know, I'm going to say neither. Thanks very much. Good mind. The reputation of the podcast intact. Great work there, Mike. Now, (laughs) another interesting question about favorites. Um, Favorite or best book by O'Brien, not in the Aubrey Maturin series, and also any other recommendations for other Napoleonic naval fiction? Really interesting question. Um, I haven't read all of the O'Brien books that are outside the canon. I haven't read Caesar, for example, and our guest, Ava Sandor, had a lot of good things to say about Caesar. Um, I have read The Golden Ocean, which is kind of a, a Jack Aubrey character prequel. It's got the same humor, some of the same characterization and appetite for authenticity and traveling the world. So I liked that. Really, really recommend it. Um, other Napoleonic fiction. Well, if you haven't already tried them, everybody's going to say, whatever you read, it's not as good as O'Brien. So don't set that as your benchmark. Um, the Sharp novels are great. Hornblower, read them all, loved them to bits. Not as great as Patrick O'Brien, but certainly worth a read. Um, the Bolithos, um, all very good. If you haven't read Mr. Midshipman Easy by Captain Frederick Marriott, then that's a really interesting read for a couple of reasons. Not only is it absolutely contemporaneous like it's written in the era of the era it's got some interesting philosophy and kind of state of man commentary in it as well it's funny and captain marriott 
served aboard ships alongside Lord Thomas Cochrane. So Marriott knows that of which he speaks. Um, folks have already asked us as well, what about non-Napoleonic, non-naval, non-era fiction, but you know, inspired by love of the canon? Um, well, we all heard our friend Jeremy Raymond back in episode eight, I think, shout for the, the Hilary Mantel novels. I've read a couple of the Hilary Mantels. They are great. Really first-class literature. Got that historical uh, tone to them. Very, very different in the style of writing from O'Brien, but absolutely worth it. Um, anything else from your side, Mike, on the uh, general fiction world? Well, you know, this is this is a real stretch here, but but I'm a big fan of James Lee Burke. So if you yeah. want a couple of there, there, there is no partnership like Matron and uh, and Aubrey in literature, I don't think. But here are two guys, and and they go through a long series of novels set in Louisiana. And as you mentioned earlier, Ian, in a couple of them, there's just a bit of magical realism. So yeah. somebody who yeah. can explore kind of the exterior around us in detail, like like O'Brien does, and the interior of our minds and and you know past. He's yeah, he's one of my favorites. Oh, fantastic! Um, yeah. Nobody's yet asked us about nonfiction. We, we talk about this a fair bit in the show as well. I've got to say, right now, I'm reading um, the book Six Frigates by Ian W. Toll. It's the, the history of the growth of the American Navy, the United States Navy, in the era of sail. It touches very, very closely on the time of our canon. Really well written. Reads like a fiction book. So if you haven't come across that, then Six Frigates by Ian Toll is a great read too. Nice. Got that on my reading stand. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, Ian. Well, you know, We've got a question here. It said, I'd be interested in a behind the scenes of The Lover's Hole. How many episodes are you working on at a given time? Do you divide and conquer the research? How much is scripted versus ad lib? How long does it take to make an episode? Oh, those are those are great questions. <laughs> so um, we're working essentially on three episodes at a time. We're researching and writing one. We're recording and interviewing one. We're editing and publishing one. So about three. And, and sometimes it gets a little confusing. It's like, yeah. wait, wait, did we already say that? Are we doing Is that next week? Did we do that? Like, you know, which especially when you're kind of listening to prove something that was two ago or something. But um, we do, we absolutely divide and conquer. Gosh, you know, and yeah. even with that, I, I think we barely get by. Yeah. <laughs> Ian, Ian, it, in, in addition to full time around the world doing everything in, in, in the rest of his life and an unbelievable pursuit of things non-work uh, on the show does all things technical, all things social media, all guests, contributes to research and writing. He's the king of the ad lib and he runs all our special That's episodes true. like this one, which you know he put completely together and the crossing the line specials. Now, on the chapter episodes, I, I end up doing most of the preliminary research, writing the first drafts, uh, and then, you know, Ian goes through them, edits and adds. We actually spend a good bit of time talking through them together before we then finally record them. So, uh, you know, how long does it take to do an episode? It takes days to do an episode. <laughs> so the, the pace of one a week has, has been, you know, kind of amazing that we've, we've kept that up and we're loving that here. There are in the midst of our recording plenty of do-overs. There are plenty of ad-libs. There are plenty of new thoughts in the moment. 
And I, I would be completely remiss if I left out of that process Sam Luce. Thank God for Sam, who yeah, edits yeah. these things. You know, and, and God bless the Patreon supporters who pay his salary. Um, you know, Ian was editing originally everything. Now he and Sam work together a little bit on edits here. And, and in the final stage of the process, I just get to just sort of go out on Sunday mornings and, and proof listen to their fabulous work. And then Ian manages all the publishing. Again, all things technical. Indeed. Ian, thoughts? Um, I- yeah, most weeks it goes smoothly. Most weeks, like you say, we remember when we were recording what the heck it is that we're talking about. Um, <laughs> most weeks we mention in the podcast what's genuinely going to happen next and not what's two weeks hence. Most weeks I remember to write the social media commentaries for the episode that we're publishing, not the episode that we've just recorded, but occasionally some of those things don't happen. <laughs> right, right. And it, it's one of the reasons why we love, you know, the Patrick O'Brien Appreciation Society. We love the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society. We love the Reddits. We love, you know, Twitter. We love all of that. And whenever we find something that's absolutely spot on for what we're doing, you know, you're not going to hear about it for two or three weeks. <laughs> oh, sadly, you know, so we try to be contemporaneous, but with the publishing schedule, it doesn't always work here. Uh, and good news, everybody's very patient with us. And good news, Patrick O'Brien makes it very easy for us. Uh, you know, if we go a chapter at a time, we don't have to think and editorialize about what are we going to talk about this week? The content, right. the great content is kind of there in front of us for us to for us to make the most of. Ah, great question. We have another question here about production, but this time looking ahead. Um, will you ever try to get Dean King on the podcast or Nikolai Tolstoy, Patrick O'Brien's mm. stepson, who's also been writing books about him? So most of you, I think, already know this. Dean King is the guy who wrote the first and unauthorized biography of Patrick O'Brien, written other books about the canon as well. Dean King is the original super fan, I think you would say, of the Patrick O'Brien world. He revealed some of the things in his biography that we now know about O'Brien's circumstances and his family life and his identity, which O'Brien was not happy to have revealed. And Nikolai Tolstoy, Patrick O'Brien's son, has written two volumes of the what you might call authorized biography, making counterpoint to Dean King. So both would be a great catch. I have a feeling that if we got to that point where we felt confident enough to go ask Dean King, we, we might well do that. And maybe one some special day we'll go ask. If we get Dean King, that'll be a big get. I think it might be a challenge to get Nikolai Tolstoy on board. I, if the opportunity came across us, I think we'd certainly ask for it. It would be great to have somebody, might, we, we talked about this with, uh, with Jeff Hunt. It would be great to have somebody who's had that first person contact with O'Brien, especially somebody who's as close to his to, to his life and his work, um, second only to having spoken to Patrick himself and to Mary. So you you never know. Ah. All right. So we've got a question for, you know, for somebody who loves research as much as I do. It's just a real juicy one. So, you know, ask. So we have Jack, often wounded, often overweight, but of a positive temperament, ready to laugh, obviously full of gusto. We've got Stephen, who, you know, written here, says, I've always pictured as thin with a temperament that we all know and love, who generally takes decent care of himself, but, you know, is sometimes, you know, goes into prolonged lapses of self-medication and addiction. Now, it says, given actuarial tables from the time, plus your own good sense, and absent any stray misadventures, how long do you think each of them will live? Well, 
you know, this is this is one I wish I had for next week because, gosh, I would love to really, <laughs> really dig into this. But very quickly, and this is, uh, you know, what we all oftentimes have to do for an Easter egg. So the earliest Royal Navy mortality tables that I found in, in, in a quick search start in 1836. So we're already kind of out of of our time here. That, that there is a British inequality project that runs from 1781 to 1931 that talks a lot about mortality, value of life. But unfortunately, those results, digging into that, are very heavily influenced by the Industrial, Revolution, uh, the Industrial Revolution. So I'm not sure that it's applicable to our Stephen and our Jack here. Uh, Wrigley and Schoenfeld's population history of England would shed some light on it, but I really don't have enough room on the plate for Chapter 1, 13-Gun Salute to research it right at the moment. And <laughs> we, of course, know that our... You know, our estimates would be tempered by the events in the second half of the canon, which, of course, we can't go into because mm. there might be spoilers, right? But without spoilers, just to give somebody an answer here, using 1843 data, I think we could comfortably see them into their late 60s, perhaps even their 70s here. Wow. Wow. Great work. <laughs> Never let it be said that you don't get your value for your research here on the Lover's Hole. Fantastic work, my guys. I can't top that. So I have a simpler but more conceptual question now. Um, and I think this listener is showing off a little bit. Uh, by or large? Because, of course, the phrase by and large is a bit of a malapropism. You can't sail both by and large. By means sailing upwind and large means sailing downwind. From the sailing perspective, sailing by the wind, sailing upwind, sailing close hauled is rewarding to do well. It's tiring. Yeah, it's mentally draining. You've got to really, really, really concentrate as a helmsman um, and your performance can deteriorate. On the other hand, some sailors that I know would say if you're sailing downwind, especially in waves, sailing large, and you've got your eye in, it can be a, a real great experience. And from I, I know that time flies, sailing fast downwind in waves is like drinking champagne. And besides, who wants to sail slowly? So I'm going to, I'm going to vote for large on this occasion. Thank you for the question. Oh, you know, I'm going to have to stick with Stephen and, you know, the, the lover that I am and say, you know, I agree with Stephen, by and large simultaneously. <laughs> like uphill and downhill. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. All at the same time. All right. So we have a question, you know, which billionaire should we petition to make an epic Game of Thrones styles TV show on the canon yeah. here. Um, now they say that yeah, Jeff Bezos is more into space, so you know maybe maybe that wouldn't work. I, I I love this question, and I would say Jeff's not out of the question. Think about the parallels between Star Trek and the canon, which we've talked about before, and with our friends on the cinephiles. Um, you know we're going to have to ask, and I'm assuming that some of you folks out there have some great insight into. Which billionaires are fans of the canon or the Royal Navy? Let's let's get that trending here and, yeah. and find out, you know, um, which billionaires are fans of the greatest male friendship in the history of literature? You know, maybe there they are thoughts there. Maybe, though, we should be a little opportunistic. We've got stuff going on now that might help us here. 
perhaps the spoils of a seized Russian oligarch's vessel could go into the cause. Oh, and, and yeah, I'm down for that. <laughs> right, right. I, I hear there's a bill in Congress over here in the States now to reauthorize letter of marks to go after the oligarch ship. <laughs> you know, we could all get together, get that letter of mark and uh, and, and head out there. And, and, you know, just as a passing thought, thinking about, you know, most recent events, it looks like Elon Musk now owns a, a substantial portion of Twitter and is joining the board. So I think Elon Musk, Tesla, great sponsor for the new series. I mean, Fantastic. can you see their marketing campaign here? What a fascinating modern world we live in. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. He's, he's, he's going to be bombarded on Twitter now. It, 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 it's, he's never going to live this down. Good let's stuff. hope. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. So uh, another favorite. This is really tough. Um, who, who's your favorite supporting character? Now, wow. this is, a, again, a little bit like saying, which of your kids do you like the least? Um, but I'll take a bit of a swing. Um, let's say that we won't count Sophie and Diana as supporting characters. Let's say that their principles along with Stephen and Jack, I can't really say that Sir Joseph Blaine is a supporting character. I think he's part of main cast. He'd be on the title card every week, I think. Nice. But for me, for, for people who whose character genuinely goes through an arc, as you might say, for people who are genuinely helping and you know, part of this friendship and loyalty and love that we see, Blaine would have been there. I, I think it's got to be Barrett Bondon. You know, we yeah. see him develop. He's a friend, sometimes a very overt friend, sometimes just in the background. Gotta love Barrett Bondon. Scribing verse up in the up in the uh, rigging. Ah, uh, Barrett yeah. Bondon. Uh, well, I got an interesting, somewhat puzzling question. Um, do horses really have a hard time digesting corn? But but I was so <laughs> happy to say finally there's something in the canon that I know a little bit about. Now, the problem is I can't find it in the canon. Um, uh, and there's only five books which mention corn as corn. You know, there's, there's you know, uh, lots of other corn-like references, but corn is corn, five books, and never in reference to horses. So I'm scratching my head here, but I'm saying, but still, it's a great question because horses have long been fed corn. We know they ate a lot of corn back in the day here. And corn can be problematic. It's a very high complex starch, so... If you've got insulin resistance, metabolic issues with your horse, that can be a problem. Corn sometimes mm -hmm. has issues with mold, especially if you're using your own, can be a problem. There's a whole pH issue related to corn and digestibility because it because of its complexity, very little of it actually is digested in the small intestine. So we you know we move down, and then we got colic issues coming up. But Gosh. I suspect all that is not really what we're looking for here. Mm. I think if we're trying to get the post-captain result that we're all going for, you know, we've got to step away from corn for a minute. And remember, the horse slowed to a walk. The bean-fed horse, as it proved by a thunderous long, long fart. So it's beans we want. Beans, Diana, and young Babington. That's what Yay. we're going for here, I think. <laughs> oh, I love it. Which is almost, which is almost an answer to the next question, Mike. Um, tell us, tell us about use of humor in Patrick O'Brien, um, and say your top three favorite funny or amusing moments. Um, 
we've talked a lot about this. I'm, I'm not going to go into three each because I don't think we've got time here. If you'd yeah. like to hear us talking at length about humor, then check out our Crossing the Line special on humor. Um, but the the Bean Fed Horse, I think it's pretty high on the list for me. My standout favorite for all the funny moments in the canon is Jack being interviewed in the Madhouse in Boston in Fortune of War. I am John Aubrey, grandson to the Pope of Rome. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great conversation, that entire interview. It's oh, my gosh. Well, we're asked, how did we meet? Also, um, you know, given that he's from North Central Florida, is Mike a gator? And in a related question, what do you think Stephen would make of Southern College football? So this is this is great fun. Thanks for the personal reference here. I think we covered how Ian and I met earlier. It's too embarrassing to go back into again. <laughs> I, I I have to admit, I am a Tar Heel first. I was so thrilled to beat Duke. I didn't even care about the championship game. But I am a Gator second. Uh, and, and I especially am indebted for my life to their wonderful hospital system there in Gainesville. So God bless them. Um, I think to the extent that Stephen has an interest in any sports, it would have to be Irish sports like hurling. Um, as Jack said in the 13 gun salute, which we're going to come up to, or actually, which we'll be recording right after this episode, I hope, <laughs> um, Jack Aubrey had little notion of his friend's mathematical or astronomical abilities and none whatsoever of his seamanship while his performance at billiards, tennis, or fives, let alone cricket would have been contemptible had they not excited such a degree of hopeless compassion. So I'm not sure that it's it's hopeless compassion we're going for here in Southern College football. I know with my (laughs) target football, sometimes it absolutely is. Excellent. Go Gators, anyhow. <laughs> right, right. Get those Gators and their excellent aid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is, the home of Gatorade. Absolutely yeah, true. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, good oh. questions. So um, we've got another interesting what if here. And this says, if we were... Yeah, what if, what if Mosey woke up halfway through the episode? That will be a thing. I'm so glad to see that our video episodes are just like real life. Yeah. <laughs> he was snoring all through the beginning, and now this. Oh, bless him. So, Mike, with or without Mosey's presence, if we were to apply a realistic timeline to the series, how old would Jack and Stephen be at the end? And how long does it last? I always figured, says the questioner, the 13-gun salute arc lasts several years. Um, it's a really interesting question. It's going to depend a lot. Uh, it depends on whether you're going to allow 1812 to repeat itself as 1812B and C and maybe even D, as O'Brien once said, or whether you're going to count those as, as, as real years. It then also depends on how long you think a circumnavigation takes. And as you say, between Far Side of the World and post 13 Gun Salute, there are, there are some, probably many. Right. In my mind, going past all of that, in my mind, by the time we get to reverse of the medal, just in my mental image of the two characters i think they are in their 40s by reverse of the medal and by the time we get to blue at the mizzen in my mind jack is pushing 50 and maybe that's me imprinting on jack i don't know but i i haven't done the math fascinating question couple that with our actuarial tables from before and we're interested but we're none the wiser there you go ian i've Uh, got i've got one for you here Um, oh okay this one's come up and i'm going no 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 ian's got to take this one here 
What character do you find yourself thinking, wonder what he'd be doing now? The listener says, mine is Michael Harapath. Huh, interesting. Uh, well, uh, again, it depends what you mean by what are they doing now. If I think of when you get to the end of the canon, which characters are you looking back and thinking, I, I wonder how things worked out for them. It would be great to hear from them again. Um, for sure, Louisa Wogan and Molly Hart. Um, for sure, Yag Yellow as well, I think. Uh, Mercedes. Mm, Mercedes. Sam Panda. Yeah. Um, those are the ones that I'm thinking about. Hey, what, what happened to the very, very end of their their, their stories? Um if you mean, what would they be doing if they were present in the 21st century? If that's the now that you're talking about, then, Mike, I, I gotta say, I love to think about Babington. Babington in the 21st century. Can you imagine? All those tall, liberated women, all that swiping right. Heaven for Babington. Oh, God. <laughs> that's great. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Babington, all, always ashore in the 21st century there. Ah, yeah. Well... Here's a paradoxical question, uh, the reader says. What, or the listener, sorry, what if Stephen and Jack had not met at the concert, not encountered each other the following morning? What would have been their separate fortunes? Ah, what a great what if question, right? And and so, you know, I guess we're going to have to pause, check in with Dr. Strange, tap into the multiverse and find out, you know, which of the worlds (laughs) did that happen on and, and how did it all Turn out. Sorry, I should never mention Patrick O'Brien and Marvel in the same paragraph here. But honestly, you know, their friendship, you know, this bond between them is 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 what I most love in the canon. And and clearly to me, you know, it's hard to think about their arcs without thinking about them together, because they would never be the people that they become without one another. Uh, it's one of those moments when I reflect back on myself. As well, uh, you know, I think to some extent I wouldn't be the person I am without them and the canon, and I definitely would not be the person that I am without those very few, very special, particular friends in my life. Amen. <laughs> well said. Yeah, fascinating question, and like all of the best questions about O'Brien, like Mike, I think I love you the way you say it. It it, it reflects us back on ourselves. It's really great. All right. Okay, we've got a few more historical-oriented questions here. We've got a great one here. Um, Was there a process for selecting a coxswain and servant and even a lob lolly boy? Would would this have been a senior hand with a leg missing or another Navy-related injury or or a boy, as the word suggests? Um, I'm not the world's great authority, but I'll tell you what I think I know. Um, A coxswain coxswain is a real rank. A coxswain is still a rank in the contemporary English-speaking navies of the world. Um, Coxon would have had a warrant as a petty officer, so would have to have been from the pool of seamen rated as able, able to hand, reef, and steer. That's how Bondon got the step, I think, in his case. Of course, being a warrant officer, he's appointed by the captain and confirmed with a warrant, so there's nothing like a qualification board or a promotion board. Servant is purely captain's choice. I think there's nothing that says a servant has to be from a particular cadre of... Uh, particularly qualified people. Um, there's no warrant. There's no formal rank associated with being a captain servant or an officer servant. Lob lolly boy, which was the generic term for a medical assistant, um, might have been a job for, I guess, an injured foremast hand. 
Um, but it might be anybody. And I don't think the boy of Lob Lolly Boy signifies that they would have been a youngster. I think it's just one of those casual usages of the word boy. Um, there's a great line about the role of surgeons, mates, and medical assistants right at the beginning of Master and Commander. They hope, he's talking about surgeons here, um, they hope for an experienced Lob Lolly Boy or a beast leech or a cunning man or maybe a butcher. So I think they would cast the net pretty wide. Right. Wow. Wow. All right. And so everyone here, what happens to Molly Hart? Her husband, the Admiral, and daughter Fanny appear in future books. But if my imperfect memory from reading and listening to the books is correct, Molly disappears after the first book. Please correct my memory or give your best guess. Wow. Great question here. You know, and, and a really good question. I've, I've wondered that myself as well. So there's a great tool if you're not already familiar with it. Um, it's www.singularityfps.com forward slash P-O-B forward slash there. And the singularity allows you to search through all the canon there. And, and, and so I use the singularity to respond to this. In fact, after book one, Molly Hart is only mentioned or referred to in terms of memories or relating back to something that happened in book one. Yeah. Um, and, and even they are only in HMS Surprised and the Ionian Mission. So your memory is absolutely correct. Uh, we never hear from or really about Molly Hart again. We just look back on her. Now, uh, Ian has a great tool called Let Me Google That For You. <laughs> so <laughs> when we were kicking this around, he sent me this link on Let Me Google That For You, What Happened to Molly Hart. And I've got to admit, if you do that, and maybe we can put this up on social media, there's a great <laughs> set of references to Molly Hart from the canon, from LinkedIn, from Facebook, and uh, from some other stories. And you can make a great tale, perhaps, about what happened to Molly Hart by just reading through some of those paragraphs and linking them together. I think it's sometimes how Wikipedia articles get written. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I use a lot. In any event, right. And what do you think, Ian? What happened? I, I, I think it's funny. Uh, I should just say that there are real Molly Hearts, or should I say Molly's Heart, um, in the world, and they'll come up in a Google search, and they have nothing to do with the canon and nothing to do with oh. the character of Molly Hart, just in case any of them is listening and has a, has a libel lawyer handy. Yeah, and if you are a Bolly Hart, right? <laughs> Sorry if we're going to hit a lot of traffic to your pages here. <laughs> oh, my. Ah, very good. Thank you. Really, really great question. Um, getting towards the end here. Um, here's a great question about Stephen. We might remember, if you remember, his public speaking performance at the Institut in Paris in, I think, The Surgeon's Mate. I have always, says our listener, always taken Stephen's public speaking performance in Paris to be a deliberate charade calculated to demonstrate that he lacks even the most basic social skills required to be involved in intelligence. So in other words, it's a smokescreen. You guys, he's talking about us, seem to think he's just a terrible public speaker. Curious why, given the explicit observations in the scene. A really interesting question. The kind of thing that you can really dig into when you read O'Brien. To what extent are the behaviors and the events you know, part of some cunning design and all for purpose, and to what extent are these accidents of character? Mike, I've got to say, I I land on the side of Stephen's an imperfect character here. Um, he was wearing colored glasses. He said to give himself countenance. He's vulnerable. He he needs, you know, his his courage needs support. 
Um, I don't think it was all a cunning ruse on his part, but nobody knows for sure. The whole point about these great books is that they're ambiguous. Nobody knows for sure. The The story that I've got in my head is that Stephen is not a paragon. Um, he's not perfect when it comes to deploying and using these great intelligence skills that he does have. These talents, these skills are situational. In some situations, he uses them absolutely with perfect clarity of decision-making and execution, like in that hotel room in Boston, um, like in various occasions when he's uh, dealing with the French intelligence agencies. But on this particular moment, other factors come to play and his his guise, his skills desert him. He can break down under these kinds of pressure. And let's remember, he's an introvert. He does right. lots of his best work spying on his own and in connection with small groups of people in front of a room full of critical scientists. He's in a very different situation. And I think... He's he's pretty genuinely all at sea here. Yeah. I mean, later today, we're going to jump into chapter one in 13 Gun Salute. And, you know, we find Stephen in all of his best intelligence uh, kind of uh, protocol, trying to talk secretly with Jack, only to find out that Killick is behind the hedge listening to him. And he says, you know, huh. sometimes, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. So I've, I've kind of taken it that same way. And I, I absolutely agree with you here. Oh. Uh, so uh, we've got a Facebook question, and it's one that actually came up in a different incarnation, I think, some months ago here. The question is that I've always wanted to ask you, our listener says, is would you consider continuing the podcast with another set of epic adventures when, you know, when we're finished with Patrick O'Brien? Um, she says, and I love this, it's just that I've thoroughly enjoyed your intelligent insight into Patrick O'Brien's books. Thank you very much. Thank you. And if there was ever another author I wish I could understand in similar depth with all of the intricacies of her writings, it's Dorothy Dunnett. On the off chance you might be fans of Lyman, I know I'm clutching at straws here, very different but equally brilliant. Well, first off, I want to say, again, thank you for your kind words and thank you for the recommendation for what appears to be a very interesting series here. I don't know that one. Um, I'd, I'd love it. I, you know, earlier, uh, a listener had said, hey, would you consider doing Sir Terry Pratchett's Discworld? Uh, also one that I knew more of, but had not read yet here. But I, I have to honestly admit, I think whenever I see something like this, my immediate thing is like, boom, 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 boom. Look, I'm just trying to get through Lover's Hole. This is a, yeah. a labor of love. This is, you know, I, I think we never really kind of conceived, especially, oh, you know, we yeah. were conceiving of this chapter a week thing and thinking, Oh my gosh, this may go on for years, which it's great. I, I, you know, I love that. But, um, you know, I, I don't know what, what you're thinking. Ian. Well, you know, when we started this off, th this was like a fun diversion. I'm, I'm surprised that we got past two episodes, to be honest. And every week that we go past, I'm like, Hey, we're actually still doing this. Um, thinking 10 books ahead that we currently have in front of us, a little less than that, maybe thinking as many as 10 books ahead is, is already plenty for us. I'm, I'm with you, Mike. I'm not right. thinking that far ahead. Secondly, I really love all of the support and the encouragement that we get from listeners and supporters out there. The thing that has taken my breath away as we've done this is all the great feedback we've got from listeners who are following the show and are sharing how much they enjoy the, the work of literature and what that means to them personally. And that's really super rewarding, to be totally honest. To be totally honest, I got in to do this to, to, to find something fun to do with my buddy, Mike. Uh -huh. And w whatever comes next, 
Um, I think it's going to be led by what's the next fun thing that Mike and I are going to do together. Um, what am I going to do to, to spend time with my particular friend rather than what's a natural next literary or historical step after talking through the Patrick O'Brien universe. So I'm, I'm not saying those two things don't overlap, but my agenda is what am I going to, going to, going to do for fun and who knows what that'll be. Ah, uh, hear him, hear him. Thanks. Ian. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, gosh. great, great question. Uh, Mike, it's, it's, it's been a great session as well. I, I want to say, first of all, thank you to everybody for the questions, questions helping us celebrate our 100th canonical episode, celebrating the milestone that we've got to and all the fun and the uh, and the excitement that we've had reading the books and sharing them with you. Um, Mike, we want to say thank you for you know 100 episodes worth of everybody listening and appreciating and encouraging and supporting and pointing out and correcting and online discussing and tweeting. Um, right. I think we want to say a glass of wine with you all. Absolutely. A glass of wine with you all. Special thanks again to our Patreon supporters and, and all of our listeners here. Um, you know what? I, I have loved going back chapter to time through Master and Commander, and I am really looking forward to 13 Gun Salute, which... Hopefully, if we still haven't run out of steam, we're going to record as soon as we finish this. But, you know, we're going to have coming up as a next episode. So, Ian, I've got to ask you, what do you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Mike, with all my heart. All my heart.